A quick note about dates in this episode. Most sources on Christopher Columbus's life have variations of one or two years when chronicling specific events. We've done our best to present a clear and accurate timeline, but please note there is some discrepancy among historians when it comes to nailing down the specific years Columbus did anything other than, of course, sailing the ocean blue in 1492. Christopher Columbus and his crew of explorers had been sailing for almost three months. Spirits were low, and desperation had been spreading among the crews of the three ships that Columbus had set out with from Spain. But then, on October 12, 1492, amidst the cries from his men that they had finally spotted land, Columbus took his telescope and looked out across the blue waves, and there he spotted it. Asia. His mission had been a success. Of course, we know now that Columbus had in fact arrived at the Bahamas, but he spent most of his life asserting that he had in fact reached mainland China and later the Garden of Eden. Christopher Columbus is known to most as the man who discovered America, but there is so much more to the story and the man. A brilliant adventurer and cartographer, Columbus was also an egotistical leader who was obsessed with his own fame and status. To preserve that legacy, he committed unspeakable crimes. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures on the Parcast Network. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing a man with a very complicated legacy, Christopher Columbus. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of podcast shows on your favorite podcast directory. A lot of you ask how to help the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help us is to leave us a five-star review. Now, to the life of Christopher Columbus. Most who attend American public school are taught the story of Christopher Columbus as a kind of first chapter of American history. But there's a lot about the man that isn't commonly known. First and foremost, his name isn't actually Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus is an anglicization of his Italian birth name, Cristoforo Colombo. America isn't the only country that's put its own spin on his name. In Spain, he's known as Cristobal Colón, and in Sweden as Christopher Columbus. That last one is spelled with two Ks for all you listeners at home. It's commonly believed that Christopher Columbus, as we will be calling him, was born sometime between August 26th and October 31st in the year 1451 in Genoa, Italy, to Christian parents. Columbus's father was a wool worker and a merchant. When he was old enough, Columbus began working as an apprentice for his father's business. But his love of exploration and adventure showed itself early on, and despite working for his father, he began to study sailing and map making in his free time. His dreams finally appeared to be coming true when he eventually left his father's business, along with his brother Bartholomew, to join the merchant marines. They'd sail the Mediterranean working as map makers. Unfortunately, at that point in time, signing up to work on a ship was essentially signing yourself up to be attacked by pirates. 
1476, when Christopher was 25, the merchant ship he was on with his brother was sailing near Portugal. They were attacked by French privateers, and the ship was sunk. Luckily, the brothers made it to shore and ultimately got all the way to Lisbon, the Portuguese capital. At that time, Portugal was a global hub of maritime exploration. The Columbus brothers decided that rather than return to Italy, they would try their luck in Lisbon. For the next few years, they worked on Portuguese trading ships and made extra money as mapmakers and booksellers. As soon as they were settled, Columbus began trying to associate himself with the Portuguese nobility. He saw it as a way to raise his own station in life. In 1478, at the age of 27, Columbus met and charmed a young Portuguese woman, Felipa Perestrello Emoniz. Felipa was the daughter of a noble Portuguese family. Normally, her status would have put her out of Columbus's league, but over the generations, her family's wealth had dwindled, chipped away by bad investments. Already 25, Felipa was on the older side for an unwed noblewoman in 1478, and Columbus asked for no dowry, something Felipa's poor family surely appreciated. Their union was described as one of mutual affection, although Columbus likely appreciated the access to nobility the relationship provided. In the summer of 1479, the couple were wed in a religious ceremony in Madeira, an island off the coast of Portugal. And a year later, in 1480, when Columbus was 29 and Felipa 27, the couple's first son, Diego, was born. Perhaps it was because of his new marriage or his new child, but after 1480, Columbus appears to have stayed put for a time. He didn't make another journey for at least two years and opted to remain in Portugal and support his family with his map-making and book-selling businesses. Then in 1482, at the age of 31, he started working again on trading ships that traveled along the West African coast. It was likely during this time he gained knowledge of Portuguese navigation techniques and the Atlantic wind systems. But it appears Columbus was not content to travel the well-worn routes. He wanted to chart his own course and discover new trade routes. And lucky for Columbus, there was demand for that kind of exploration. The nations of Europe had previously enjoyed unrestricted access to the trade routes through the Middle East to the region of South and Southeast Asia that was collectively known as the Indies. But with the fall of Constantinople in 1453, the Ottoman Empire had taken control of Turkey and imposed strict tariffs on European trade. The leaders of Europe were looking for a new alternate route to the Indies that would allow them to bypass this blockade the timing was perfect for Columbus. In 1484, at the age of 33, he began planning what would be his most famous journey, an Atlantic crossing. We should address a common misconception from this era. Most people during this time period did not believe the world was flat. While some religious scholars asserted this fact, the generally accepted belief was that the world was, in fact, spherical. Columbus was actually one of the dissenters he allegedly believed the Earth was more pear-shaped. And that's why he thought he could sail to the Indies faster than people had previously thought possible. 
His plan was to sail around the thinner part of the planet. The size and shape of the Earth aside, as far as any Europeans knew, a journey across the Atlantic had never been attempted before. So Columbus's interest in using it as a more direct route to the Indies was somewhat revolutionary. And he knew the endeavor would be massive, to say the least. He needed royal support, so he began his search in his resident country of Portugal with King John II. But despite his best effort, Columbus's petitions for aid were denied. We don't know the exact reason, but it's safe to assume that since this was a very expensive and completely unprecedented journey, the risk seemed to outweigh the reward. Columbus continued trading along West Africa for another year, but then in 1485, tragedy struck. Philippa, Columbus's wife of nearly six years, passed away. Her cause of death is unknown, but Columbus was left a widower at age 32. After his wife's death, Columbus relocated from Portugal to what is now modern-day Spain. It was there that he began once again seeking patronage for his mission, this time from King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Aragon and Castile. Aside from financing for the mission, Columbus wanted one-tenth of the share of any goods or treasure found, as well as the title of admiral if he succeeded. As an admiral, Columbus would have power over the ports and fleets of the kingdom. Columbus had to know it was risky to tack on these extra demands, given that the funding alone for the mission was a huge ask. But his behavior paints a picture of a man who knew what he wanted and was willing to achieve it by any means necessary. The king and queen rejected Columbus's proposal. Over the next few years, he tried at least two more times to get approval and was rejected both times. He stayed busy during those years, both in his professional and personal life. In 1487, Columbus met and fell in love with 20-year-old Beatriz Enriquez de Arana of Cordoba. For reasons that remain unclear, Columbus and Beatriz were never legally married. Beatriz became his mistress, and in 1488, when Columbus was about 37, she gave birth to his second son, Ferdinand. There are many theories as to why they never married. Some speculate that she could have been Jewish, which at the time would have made it impossible for the devoutly Catholic Columbus to take her as a wife. But regardless of their marital status, she was a major figure in Columbus's life. While he was off exploring, Beatriz remained in Spain and raised his two sons. He was gone frequently. In the ensuing years, he continued his merchant expeditions to Africa, all the while spending his time in Spain working to expand his network of influential friends. In 1491, at around the age of 40, he met and became friends with the Spanish treasurer Luis de Santangel. They became so close that he ended up spending a summer at Luis's home in the country. It was there that he met the Franciscan friars of La Rabida. A devout Catholic himself, Columbus appears to have hit it off with the friars, and that relationship opened some major doors for him. One of the friars, Juan Perez of La Rabida, as her confessor, was a particularly close friend of Queen Isabella. Friar Juan Perez supposedly intervened on Columbus's behalf, and that is what finally secured the official royal support in that fateful year of 1492. 
And just like that, the journey that had been years in the making was officially a go. The majority of the finances to prepare Columbus's ships, the Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria, were provided by the Royal Treasury and a group of Spanish bankers and financiers. But Columbus also contributed a significant sum of his own growing fortune to the mission. So for Columbus, there was a lot riding on this voyage. He had staked his entire reputation, his one shot at a position of power, and a large portion of his own finances on a successful journey. And at the time, he was not an especially wealthy man, so he wouldn't be left with much if the voyage failed. He'd be out of money, he'd have lost his chance for notoriety, and he'd be a national laughingstock. And so, the journey had to succeed. Up next, we'll discuss Columbus's first trip across the Atlantic Ocean. Now back to the story. On August 3rd, 1492, 40-year-old Christopher Columbus set sail across the Atlantic with three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. He almost immediately demonstrated his navigational genius. The obvious route would be to sail directly west. But the winds in the more direct route had proved for many difficult to manage and had halted many journeys before they'd even begun. Columbus had his ships sail south first, which allowed them to catch the northwest winds off the coast of Africa. But the journey still proved long. By October 10th, over two months since they set sail, they had yet to see land. Food was running low tensions high, and the men's faith in Columbus was waning. The crew were getting impatient and restless and starting to fear that if they didn't find land soon, then they wouldn't have enough provisions to make it back to Spain. Some began to argue that they needed to give up and turn back. If they had done so, it could have changed the course of history. Columbus wouldn't even entertain the thought of turning back. The party stayed the course, and two days later, on October 12th, 1492, a sailor on the Pinta finally saw land. It was the first sighting of the Caribbean by a European. The crew was overjoyed, but none was more excited than the sailor who first spotted the island. Columbus had promised a large reward to the first person to spot land. But then Columbus claimed that he had seen land from his ship, the Santa Maria, the night before. He said he didn't say anything because he didn't want to excite the crew until he was sure. But since he had been the first to see land, he got to keep the reward for himself. Well, that sounds like Columbus just didn't want to pay up. I agree. And the identity of the exact island where Columbus and his crew first landed is up for some debate. Apparently, their writing about the island was extremely vague, describing it as large, green, and flat. So, not very specific, but based on what information they do have, most historians believe the frontrunner is the island of San Salvador. They met the native people of the area, and at first, relationships were friendly. The island's inhabitants were open to trade and reportedly unafraid of the Spanish sailors. They traded spices and animals, but most notable to the crew was the gold jewelry the islanders wore. These were mostly just small rings in their noses and ears, but the people told Columbus that on neighboring islands, there was even more jewelry. Columbus didn't spend much time on this first island, eager to press on to a place he and his crew called Sipango. 
Unfortunately, he didn't have much of a chance getting there from San Salvador, as Sipango has been identified as modern-day Japan. They really were convinced they were in Asia. In fact, Columbus briefly believed he had found Japan when they made their second landing in Cuba on October 28th. However, based on the geographical layout of Cuba and the surrounding islands he'd been to, he determined they were on the mainland of China. Columbus next turned southward, determined to find the famous city of Zetun, which today is Chuanzhou, China. Because of that one decision, Columbus missed his chance to discover North America. By turning southwest from Cuba, he just missed his chance to spot the southern tip of Florida. Winds ended up taking the ships to Haiti, which Columbus named Hispaniola. He had not found any definitive proof that he had discovered the Indies, but Hispaniola had enough riches and gold that Columbus would be able to return to Spain without being labeled a failure. The explorers loaded back onto their ships and set sail for Spain. Late in the evening on December 24, 1492, a number of the exhausted crewmen of the Santa Maria, including Columbus, drifted off to sleep. The water seemed calm, and they felt the ship would be safe. But that night, the Santa Maria ran aground on a reef near one of the islands and was wrecked. The next morning, on December 25th, Columbus realized that they couldn't repair the ship with the tools they had on hand. Instead, Columbus ordered his men to dismantle the ship and use its scrap to construct a fortress. The treasure from the ship's cargo hold was stored in the fort, and Columbus left 39 of his men behind to guard the goods. Finally, on January 16, 1493, Columbus set sail back to Europe with his two remaining ships. The journey was anything but easy. The winds were in their favor, but a terrible storm surrounded the fleet, and the Nina was forced to seek harbor at the port of Santa Maria off the African coast. To make matters worse, the Portuguese authorities in Santa Maria imprisoned many of Columbus's men. They probably weren't thrilled about a foreign fleet docking on their shores. Columbus was eventually able to secure their release, but due to the damage the storms did to his ships, he wouldn't be able to make it back to Aragon and Castile without assistance. The fleet had to land in Portugal first, and Columbus petitioned King John II for aid. The meeting was reportedly cordial, but word got back to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, and this put Columbus under suspicion of collaborating with Portugal. After the ships were fixed and Columbus finally returned to the royal court on March 15, 1493, he found that many of his former friends now questioned his loyalty. Regardless, Columbus's popularity among the common people during this time was at an all-time high. His journey had been deemed a massive success. As far as anyone knew, he had made it to East Asia and brought back gold, spices, exotic animals, and human captives. So despite the reservations about his loyalty, his next journey was planned almost immediately. And the success meant the journey was much more of an ordeal. On September 25, 1493, at the age of 42, Columbus set sail again with at least 17 ships. This time, Christian evangelization and European colonization were on the agenda. A group of friars sailed with Columbus, along with nearly 1,300 salaried men and a couple hundred private investors, which makes pretty clear the public investment in the journey. 
They reached Hispaniola on November 3rd, and then began sailing around the island to rendezvous with the men they had left behind. They reached the meeting site on the 27th. Columbus was eager to show the new voyagers all the riches he had left behind, but he was shocked by what he found. The stockade was destroyed, and the men he had left to guard it were all dead. Not very surprising, considering Columbus and his men stole from the indigenous people and kidnapped many of them on his first journey. Columbus continued to explore the region, still attempting to find the Chinese mainland. He searched the Cuban coastline and ultimately reached Jamaica. He decided that Cuba must have been the mainland of China that he had been searching for. But his confidence in that may just have been for show. On June 12, 1494, he forced his entire crew to swear a declaration attesting he had, in fact, found Asia. Columbus wanted to be sure he could convince his benefactors back in Spain that he had found China, despite the fact that the more they learned about the region, the less likely it seemed. By 1496, Columbus had overseen the establishment of La Isabella in Hispaniola. It was a huge settlement, with reportedly over 200 constructed homes. La Isabella was the first major European foothold in the New World. On March 10, 1496, Columbus departed back to Spain, leaving his brothers Bartholomew and Diego in charge. He reached Spain by June 11th and immediately started pressing for resources to make his third journey. But the political circumstances of Europe were fast changing and not in his favor. Columbus had brought back significantly more gold and jewels, but the cost of his second mission had been much higher than the first. The haul didn't seem to make up for the investment, and at this time, Spain had just gone to war with France over control of Italy and could no longer afford to drop huge sums on exploratory missions. Further complicating matters was the issue of ocean territory. In 1492, the same year of Columbus's first journey, Spain and Portugal had agreed on a treaty that split the Atlantic in half down the middle. Portugal got the east, and Spain got the west. But that treaty had been made before the Europeans learned there was unknown land on the other side of the Atlantic. In the minds of the European empires, this land was up for grabs. Because of this, Columbus was finally, tentatively, granted permission for a third voyage in the hopes that he would solidify Spanish holdings in the New World. He left with six ships on May 30, 1498, when he was 46. Three of the ships were filled with fellow explorers and three with provisions for once they arrived. Columbus's main personal goal with this mission was to explore the area south of the regions he previously sailed to. The hope was that they would find a route from Cuba, which they still believed was China, to India. In early August 1498, Columbus and his crew first landed on the island of Trinidad and then traveled on to Venezuela. This was the first time they landed on the mainland of South America. Immediately upon landing, they planted the Spanish flag. Columbus quickly decided that while he had not found the strait to India as he had hoped, he had in fact discovered a whole new continent, a new world, one he believed might be of biblical proportions. In the wake of the disappointment of not actually finding India, Columbus began to argue that this new world was, in fact, 
the Garden of Eden, and thus he and his men should continue exploring the area as part of a divine mission. After this declaration, he traveled back to Hispaniola, but didn't find much good news there. It turned out that both the native people and the European immigrants that lived in La Isabela had not been happy under the rule of Columbus's brothers Diego and Bartholomew. Columbus attempted to restore order, mostly by executing protesters. Appeals were sent back to Spain, complaining about Columbus's barbaric tactics and autocratic leadership methods. In response, Chief Justice Francisco de Bobadilla was dispatched to La Isabella to investigate. The village had suffered from disease, poor resource provisioning, uneven distribution of wealth, and extremely poor relations with the natives. Given that Columbus did everything he could to exercise direct control over this village, he seemed to be the man to blame. Upon arriving in La Isabella, Bobadilla ruled against the Columbus family. He stripped Columbus of his governorship and seized Columbus's house and records. Columbus and his brothers were arrested and sent back to Spain. It was a long journey back. One Christopher Columbus spent entirely in chains. He fell ill on the voyage, unable to sleep, his eyes strained, and the beginnings of rheumatoid arthritis setting in. But despite all that, he managed to compose a lengthy letter in which he emphatically explained his work. He was still confident in his navigational skills, and he was sure he had come very close to finding what he described as earthly paradise. The Garden of Eden was real. Columbus had found it, and he needed the resources to keep exploring the area so that he could uncover more treasures. He was still convinced there was a divine reason for his journeys, and that he was being led by God to discover paradise. Putting in a letter that you are no less than an agent of God is a bold move. Columbus was convinced that fate was not done with him. And up next, we'll discuss how he managed to rebuild his status and return once again to the new world. Now back to the story. It was late in the year 1500, eight years after his original journey across the Atlantic, when Christopher Columbus returned to Spain under less than ideal circumstances. Once a publicly adored and widely revered explorer, Columbus was now in chains. He had spent his long journey back from the New World composing a lengthy letter for the monarchy, reminding them of his accomplishments, his skills, and of his self-perceived divine significance. He did believe he'd found the Garden of Eden after all. This letter apparently worked. When he arrived back in Spain in October of 1500, the monarchy was convinced Columbus might have actually been close to finding paradise. They couldn't deny his navigational abilities, and as a repeatedly successful explorer, he was a safer bet than the many younger navigators who had been rising in attempts to compete with him. Plus, Columbus was famous enough by now that if Spain didn't want him, he could likely get support from another country. But Ferdinand and Isabella couldn't completely let him off the hook. In 1501, Columbus was given permission to plan for a fourth voyage, but he was informed that he would never be re-granted his governorship or his noble title as an admiral. Columbus took what he could get and began planning for what would be his final journey to the New World. During the preparations, Columbus became obsessed with writing out his own religious beliefs so that he could share them with the world. He wrote many letters in the months preparing for his final journey, 
all very confident in the nearness of his discovery of paradise. He also wrote of the need for Christians to reclaim Jerusalem, which at that time was under control of the Muslim Ottoman Empire. He went so far as to start calling himself Christ-bearer in his letters. That's how confident he was that he was doing God's will in bringing Christianity to the East. He began composing a book of prophecies, which was essentially an apocalyptic text featuring several passages from the Bible. They detailed the need for Christianity to be spread across the world and for Christians to regain control of the Holy Land, or the world might end. He also began writing his so-called Book of Privileges, which defended the titles and finances of the Columbus family from any claims that had been made against them. In retrospect, these writings paint a picture of an increasingly resolute, but also incredibly paranoid man falling further into his own delusions of grandeur. On May 9, 1502, Columbus set sail on his final journey. The Spanish crown hadn't addressed Columbus's claims about the Garden of Eden, but they did still think it was possible to find a more direct path to India. He left Spain with four ships his smallest fleet since his first journey a decade prior. Columbus was forbidden from returning directly to Hispaniola. Instead, he was instructed by the monarchy to continue his exploration southward. He took his time on that front. In order to take advantage of what he assumed would be massive gold deposits along the Panamanian region, he attempted to set up a trading post near the Belen River in Panama in February 1503. But disaster struck again, as, against his better judgment, Columbus turned northward too soon. The ships, already in extremely poor condition from a year of travel, simply couldn't make the journey. They landed on the coast of Jamaica by June 1503, their ships at this point good for little more than shelter on the beach. Stuck on the island, some of the crew members set sail for Hispaniola to ask for help. They traversed the 450 miles of ocean in a rowboat. There were few in this part of the world that were keen on helping Columbus. His reputation had spread among the other settlers and native people. The party was ultimately stranded in Jamaica for over a year. Further conflicts arose when the native people, understandably tired of dealing with Spaniards, stopped supplying them with food. Things appeared to be dire, but Columbus came up with a solution. Columbus had an almanac, and he knew the lunar cycle. He knew an eclipse was coming. So on February 29, 1504, he threatened to take away the moon if the natives didn't continue supplying them with food. When on that night the moon disappeared due to a lunar eclipse... The natives relinquished and continued to supply the crew. Rescuers finally reached Jamaica in late June 1504. Columbus and the crew were brought to Hispaniola the next month, and on November 7, 1504, he sailed back to Spain for the final time. Before setting out on his final journey, Columbus had told his benefactors that he hoped that, quote, my hard and troublesome voyage may yet turn out to be my noblest, end quote. But that did not prove to be the case. The journey had failed to yield any new or useful information, and they had failed to find India. It was also becoming quite clear that this new world was not the Garden of Eden, but a whole new continent. Upon arriving in Spain and for the final years of his life, Columbus lived a comfortable existence, 
but he never regained the popularity that he had enjoyed after his earlier voyages. He didn't live out his last years in poverty, as some believe. His youngest son, Diego, had established himself well in the Spanish court, and Columbus contractually ensured share of the gold that his crew discovered. One-tenth, per the agreement, proved enough to provide for a comfortable life. However, his reputation was another matter. He had already lost his noble title after his last voyage, and the knowledge of his poor governorship had spread. Over the next couple of years, Columbus made constant attempts to gain an audience with King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. He hoped to plead his case and restore his reputation and nobility, but the monarchs wouldn't even meet with him. On May 20th, 1506, less than two years after returning to Spain, Columbus passed away at the age of 54. His remains were buried in the Franciscan friary in Valladolid. However, Columbus remained the consummate traveler even in death, and his remains didn't stay in Valladolid for long. Shortly after his burial, his remains were unearthed and taken to his family mausoleum in a Carthusian monastery. Then, in 1542, he was moved to the Cathedral of Santo Domingo in the modern-day Dominican Republic, at his son Diego's request. After Spain ceded this region to France in 1795, the remains were reportedly moved to Havana, Cuba, and then, in 1898, they were returned to Spain. Reportedly is right. In 1877, workers at the Cathedral of Santo Domingo claimed to find remains identified as Columbus's, which have remained there since. To this day, both Spain and the Dominican Republic claim to house his remains. The fact that his remains seem lost is oddly fitting for a man who never quite seemed to grasp where he was. For the first couple of centuries after his death, Columbus's story was mostly a historical footnote. He was known for discovering many of the Caribbean islands, but just as much for mismanaging them and for insisting that they were, in fact, Asia. The journey to Columbus's current legacy starts over 300 years after his death, in the 1820s, with a man named Washington Irving, a young American fiction writer. Today, Irving is known for being the author of Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. But his connection to Columbus begins before all that. Early in his career, Irving took a trip to Spain. There, Irving was given a collection of Columbus's texts and letters, all in Spanish. He saw an opportunity in translating and selling the writing to an English audience. Irving started the project, but quickly realized that translating the texts would take much more time than he wanted to devote to the task. So he had the idea to write a narrative. Irving took major liberties in the telling of Columbus's story and embellished much about his accomplishments, all the while claiming he had written a biography of the man. It was Irving that came up with the idea to say that Columbus discovered America and that he proved the earth was round. This narrative biography painted Columbus as a self-made man, a revolutionary in a time of ignorance who found a pathway to one of the most significant historical achievements in history, and the book was a huge success. Around the late 1800s, Italian immigrants began coming to America in droves, hoping to escape poverty and harsh conditions in Europe. But life in the United States was not the paradise they may have hoped for. 
They were met with persistent religious and ethnic persecution by the predominantly Anglo-Saxon American residents of the time. It was difficult for them to find work. They were blatantly discriminated against by businesses and housing, and even lynching was not uncommon. Desperate to gain acceptance in broader American culture, they found Irving's biography and latched onto it. Columbus's devout Catholicism and his Genoese origin appealed to Italians. The persecuted group finally had a narrative that tied the very things they were persecuted for into the fabric of the American story and they pushed it hard. From there, this public veneration of Columbus and the embellished narrative of his accomplishments worked its way so strongly into public consciousness that it became the official story. It became a part of public school curriculum to teach children this false narrative of the discovery of America. And it has been a fundamental part of U.S. history for decades. But in recent years, there has been pushback against this version of history. Native American groups in particular have been protesting the glorification of Columbus and his actions for years. There's even been a push to rename Columbus Day as Indigenous Peoples Day, a movement that has taken hold in many parts of America. Over the past few decades, public opinion about Columbus has started to focus more on the atrocities he committed, from being an incredibly greedy and ill-equipped governor to the slaughter and kidnapping of thousands of natives for the European slave trade. So we have to take on this critical lens when we examine Columbus's legacy ourselves. Was he a great explorer who discovered new worlds? Or was he a barbarian who couldn't even find the land he was looking for? Well, he was, without a doubt, a very skilled and groundbreaking navigator. One of the preeminent and most successful explorers of his time in terms of sheer scope, cultural significance, and innovation. But he was also an extremely stubborn man who refused to admit his own mistakes. He repeatedly prioritized his own interests above those of anyone else, and he unflinchingly stole from, killed, and kidnapped Native people. Columbus's biography is a great example of how history, despite its pretension of fact, can be a story just like any other. It can get told and changed, written and rewritten, and it's on us to try to find the best information we can to make sure we understand as much of the truth as possible. No matter how it happened, Christopher Columbus undoubtedly has a place in both U.S. and world history. Just make sure you know what exactly that history is. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Nick Brovender and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.